The first F1 win for a V10 engine was somewhat overshadowed at the 1989 San Marino Grand Prix, thanks to Gerhard Berger surviving a fireball accident early on and the war between Alain Prost and Ayrton Senna truly kicking off after this race. Those were just two of the many talking points in F1 at this early stage of the era we celebrate here on Bring Back V10s. And joining me, Glenn Freeman, to look back at the second race of 1989 are the two men who we always seem to turn to when we go back this far, Ed Straw and Sam Smith. Now, Sam, welcome to your first appearance of Series 4. So we'll come to you first. What's the first thing that comes to mind for you when you think back to Imola 89? Well, as I haven't spoken to Ed for ages, it's got to be Nicola Larini's superb qualifying performance. They got him 14th on the grid. But um, no, well, we'll come back to that in a, a dedicated Acela episode soon, I'm sure. But being serious, it, it's got to be that awful accident that befell Gerhard Berger. I mean, I, I can recall exactly where I was as a 14-year-old watching that with with my dad uh, having a TV Sunday roast and, and my dad's going for a Burton as he sort of screamed at the TV to to get Berger out of there and, and for the marshals to to save him effectively it was it was such a shocking thing to witness on a Sunday afternoon and it sort of re-emphasized the the peril if you will of F1 cars around a track like Imola uh, which was always pretty unforgiving at the best of times so yeah certainly one of those moments that sort of seems to slow down and you know you you always remember where you are when you see something as as hideous as that and, and thank goodness that that Berger survived yeah and we'll talk about that in a lot more depth later on now, Ed welcome along Sam's obviously taken your Larini reference there and I've got more bad news for you because there was initially a question about pre-qualifying that had made it into our running order but I'm sorry to say that's been cut to save us some time so aside from eight cars setting times in pre-qualifying that would have got them into the race if they'd all made it through What's your standout memory from this weekend? Well, obviously, my my interest had largely gone by the time pre-qualifying was finished on Friday morning, so uh, it's a muddy memory. For the race, yeah, it's the burger crash, but if you just say Imola 89 to me, then it's the Senna Prost tinderbox exploding, creating an era-defining rivalry, which I think we might get onto a little bit later in this podcast. Yeah, it's fascinating, really, that a story where they didn't drive into each other is arguably one of their biggest fallings out, but we'll come to that much later on. Before we dive into the events of April 1989. Remember to get your questions in for our series finale episodes using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or email BringBackV10s at the-race.com. And if you want to get early access to ad-free versions of our new episodes, sign up to the Race Members Club where you can get a range of other benefits as well. To find out more, head to the-race.com forward slash members club. We'll start this episode in the same place we'll end it, and that's talking about McLaren. After winning 15 out of 16 races in 1988, McLaren had been defeated at the first attempt in 1989. That was primarily down to Senna getting caught up in a collision at the start in Brazil and Prost suffering a clutch problem that meant he couldn't make another pit stop, so couldn't take on fresh tyres. But McLaren had other issues to iron out. The drivers weren't happy with the balance of the car or the throttle response from the normally aspirated Honda engine, so the team set to work on solving those problems during an eight-day test at Imola before this San Marino Grand Prix. By the time every team apart from Tyrrell turned up for what was meant to be a three-day test, McLaren was already five days into its programme, which included Senna running a development version of the iconic MP44 from the previous year, to try out a new gearbox and rear suspension. 
McLaren ended that test a terrifying 2.5 seconds faster than Nigel Mansell's Ferrari in third, but fortunately Mansell's surprise win in Rio had already ensured the Imola race weekend would be a sellout. So Sam, McLaren were hardly in crisis here, let's be honest. The car was quick. Senna was on pole by eight tenths in Brazil. But by turning a three-day test into an eight-day test, was that just a sign of the level McLaren was operating at compared to everybody else in this era? I don't think that sort of attention to detail was uncommon from McLaren in the late 80s and early 90s. I mean, an eight-day test, I mean, that's that's probably exhausted Tyrrell's yearly budget straight away, hasn't it? But what you've got to remember is that in 89, it was the first season of running the Atmo car, and there had been some glitches in testing, and then at Rio, it hadn't been a particularly smooth weekend for them. So it was an all-out sort of a maximum attack mode to a large degree anyway. The, the previous season had shown that McLaren was essentially operating at a different level. And I recall attending a few tests myself with my father in, in 89. We had a family friend who worked for McLaren. And I just recall seeing in the back of the garages these banks of computers, which now would look a bit chunky and, and outdated, I guess. But then it was otherworldly. You know, this was a, a completely new way of going racing. You, you didn't see anything like that outside of Star Trek or or Tomorrow's World, something for the uh, 80s kids there. So um, I, I guess even via the TV, watching on TV, you got a sense that Senna and Prost were right at the cutting edge and McLaren, McLaren were at the cutting edge of a really progressive team. When, when you look at the arsenal of talent that was behind the scenes as well, I mean, Gordon Murray, Steve Nichols, Neil Oatley, um, Dave Ryan, Osamu Goto, who was running the Honda programme, of course. They, they were all controlled by Ron Dennis and even sort of what you call senior middle management, such as Crichton Brown, had a lot of experience. And, and they were just bringing the team into a completely uh, different operating window to anyone else on the grid at that stage. So really, they just seemed completely impossible to beat in that era. That's my defining memory of, of how McLaren was operating at that time. And probably all that computing power you saw in the back of the garage was less powerful than one of our phones that we've got um, today. But elsewhere in F1 at this time, there was a bizarre situation where Yamaha felt compelled to deny stories that its F1 engine program was actually an undercover mission for Toyota. This was fueled by commercial ties between the two companies away from racing. Yamaha was developing road car engines for Toyota at the time, but it didn't make cars of its own. So this led people to question what it was getting out of a Formula One program with Zack Speed at the time. Yamaha's senior managing director, Takahijo Hasegawa, addressed the speculation about links with Toyota, saying, F1 is the top of what's possible with engines, so it was natural that we would want to come into it. Even though we don't make cars, we want to show the world that Yamaha makes engines that are reliable. For the moment, we don't think big. We'd like to be a small group but with big technology. Now, Ed, the Yamaha name stuck around in F1 until the late 90s, but did it ever really make sense that they had an F1 engine but no road cars to sell? It certainly made it an outlier among the engine manufacturers, but Yamaha made it quite clear that its F1 objective was to acquire technical knowledge. That was the phrase that was very often appearing in the, the literature it put out. Yeah, Yamaha wasn't selling cars, but it was making plenty of engines. So, yeah, logical from that perspective. They did actually try to produce a, a high-end road car on the back of the F1 project, but uh, never got past the, the prototype phase. It was a bit of a flop. So, yeah, Yamaha Corporation, a pretty diverse company in terms of its output. So, 
I guess they just like the idea of uh, of enhancing their technology that way. It did have that relationship with Toyota that you mentioned. It also had some partnerships with Ford, etc. So, real engine manufacturer. So, I'm sure F1 on paper made sense. On track, it made less sense as the results ultimately showed. I don't doubt that there was some kind of dialogue with Toyota. It makes sense. They had a very long-standing connection, those two companies. But I think it's massively overstating it to consider the Yamaha F1 project some kind of stalking horse for Toyota. I wonder if it helped them sell any pianos as well. But, Ed, let's make your day nice and early in this episode because we have a legitimate reason to talk about Gabriele Tarquini. The Italian was confirmed before this race as the full-season replacement at AGS for Philippe Streff, who'd suffered horrible injuries in a testing crash in Brazil ahead of the season. We'll talk about Streff in more detail when we do a Brazil 89 episode in the future, but by the time of Imola, the update on his condition was that he was now breathing without difficulty and beginning to regain some feeling in his arms in hospital in France. So Ed, let's look at Tarquini, as you always do in every day of your life. He he already had a handful of F1 starts to his name, plenty of failures to pre-qualify in 1988 with Coloni. But was this AGS chance a better opportunity to show what he could really do? Yeah, for a short time, definitely. Even if AGS was was a team that was in a a near-permanent state of flux for reasons far too lengthy to go into here, they had a a carryover car from 88, so it worked reasonably well. Tolkini actually qualified pretty reliably for the first half dozen races. There is quite a big asterisk against that in that he was in the AGS that didn't have to get through pre-qualifying, and Joe Winklehock in the other car didn't get through pre-qualifying ever, basically. But Tarquini made the most of it, loitered around the points quite often during that run towards the end of race. He's got sixth place in Mexico, 13th on the grid in Monaco. But yeah, never escaped, uh, never did enough to avoid dropping into pre-qualifying the second half of the year. And AGS, because it was in, in such a tricky situation, didn't really build on that. And then once, of course, they were in pre-qualifying, had Goodyear tyres, which didn't work so well in pre-qualifying. And you had Tarquini going from... But being a point scorer, picking up one point and being a little bit unlucky, actually, not to pick up a couple more to just never pre-qualifying in the second half of the season. So it actually created this very brief half dozen or so races that were the, the highlight of Tarquini's career. So a short but beneficial uplift, but it all went a little bit colony as the season went on. Yeah, And if you want to hear much more about why pre-qualifying was so bonkers and sometimes so unfair, uh, head back to Series 1 where uh, we basically let Ed live in dreamland for just over an hour and just discuss all the random stories and backmarkers that were in that era. But let's move on to another subject that I think is going to be quite fun, because in the news in April 1989 was the Birmingham Super Prix, which by this point had become an established F3000 event. But the local authorities in Birmingham had set their sights higher than that, and they were seeking an act of parliament to allow the event to expand to four days. The short-term goal was to get the F3000 event expanded to three days, but Les Collins, Birmingham City Council's chief executive, said that because legislation was so expensive, it made sense to get the application for a four-day event in at the same time for what he called the long-term ambition of hosting a Grand Prix. Now, Sam, you love a bit of F3000, so I'm sure you know the Super Prix well from its, its brief run in the late 80s. What would an F1 race on those streets of Birmingham have been like? Would it have been brilliant or ridiculous? Brilliantly ridiculous, I reckon. (laughs) (laughs) Having attended the 1990 race in a working capacity as a spotty 
work experience kid for a team um I, you know i can almost still hear the the resonance of those engines bouncing off the um the buildings in birmingham it was it was a fantastic event it was a terrific circuit actually and, and challenging um that, that amazing double back straight down belgrave middleway it was a it was a fast street circuit and yet safety may have been marginal to say the very least there, there were some apocalyptic 3000 shunts i mean David Hunt famously took a chunk out of a brick wall in 88. Uh, Fabrizio Barbata had this most extraordinary cartwheeling incident when he launched off the back of Eddie Irvine and sort of went went in the general direction of Edgebaston Cricket Ground. I mean, on paper, it, it sounds fanciful to say that Birmingham could have hosted a Grand Prix in those early days. But when you look at the likes of Adelaide or Detroit or Phoenix, from that era, I, I wouldn't say Birmingham was any less able to host a race or was any less of, of a challenge. And, it, you know, it, it kind of had elements of reminding one of Adelaide in, in some respects. It, it was quick um, and it had lots of overtaking opportunities. I think the big issue will have been the pits and the paddock infrastructure, which, if I remember correctly, was located on the forecourt of Bristol Street Motors car dealership, which was a bit novel. And uh, I think I think I may have recalled Sir Jackie Stewart trying to flog some Ford Scorp- Scorpios down there, actually. I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, you know, when you look back at the UK then, it was dovetailing between Brands Hatch and, and Silverstone, wasn't it, until 86. And then Silverstone was revamped in 91. So there was limited, there's always going to be a limited chance of a of, of a, another track coming up on the rails and, and snatching it from those two. So, but we can dream, can't we? And, you know, I don't think it got particularly close, but it's fairly tantalising when you think about F1 cars around there. And, I, you know, I don't think it, it it is ridiculous to say that you could have had a really good Grand Prix there. And it's 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 more real than any London Grand Prix plans have, have ever been. At least the circuit existed and hosted high level racing. But let's move on. Dennis Jenkinson in Motorsport magazine was critical of the teams that weren't yet running their definitive 1989 cars by the second race of the season. A handful of teams, including Benetton, March, Minardi, and Coloni, were still running their 1988 cars, while Tyrrell would have only one new car for Imola. And Williams would spend most of the year running a version of its 1988 FW12 adapted to take the Renault V10 engine. Jenks wrote, The object of any serious team should be to have its new cars ready for the first race of the season, especially if the season is to be for a new formula. McLaren, Honda and Ferrari achieved this in spite of the fact that they were racing turbocharged cars right through to the end of 1988. Every race you miss with your new car puts you that far behind the opposition, especially the successful ones who win the races. While all the late panic and sweat, uh, which was used to describe teams rushing to get new cars ready, seems commendable, you have to admire the front-running teams who were ready to go from the first day of practice of the first race. So Ed, we'll come to some of the individual situations behind these teams running older cars shortly. But we're used to now teams coming out of a new car every season in the modern era. It's, if you ignore the carryover year we're in at the moment, it's been a long time since any top teams would carry a chassis over as they used to. Looking back, though, to 1989, F1 was a different world back then. Was this criticism of a handful of teams for carrying their cars over really fair? To a point, as clearly it would be preferable to have a new car ready for the start of the year, but... That's the point I often make 
when we're talking about this kind of period, this was a transitional phase for Formula One. And even for a few more years, this would remain relatively common. Even a few occasions early in the 21st century and Ferrari carried over its car for the first few races. So this rhythm of new cars for the start of the year wasn't quite as well established. And teams were often, well, always compared to today, smaller and relatively speaking, more amateurish. That sounds like a like I'm slating them, but just compared to what we see today amateurish in terms of the processes etc you could sometimes get get an advantage as well from carrying over a car early early in a season provided that car's fast enough the point about the new formula i think is maybe where jenks is being uh, missing a little bit of the context because yeah teams like mclaren and ferrari did have to do new cars but the vast majority of teams effectively were running to the new rules in 88 because almost everyone with a few exceptions were running normally aspirated cars so while there's something to the criticism, I think to call this a, a new formula as a criticism of the carrying over of cars isn't necessarily quite quite fair. But obviously, big picture, yeah. And as time went on, teams did more regularly do this. But as some teams found, you could gain an advantage from it, as AGS indeed did. The 1989 cars from March and Benetton were already testing by this point, but they weren't considered ready to race yet. Williams's FW13 would come out for the final four races of the year and then race into 1990 as well. So it spent almost the entire 1989 season racing with what it called a C-spec version of its car from the previous year. Thierry Bootson joined the team from Benetton and he said the FW12C only had one setup that worked and that was to run it as stiff as possible, which didn't make it great to drive. Patrick Head said Williams should have made a better car in 1989 adding, in truth, we carried forward the FW12 that we'd done for the Judd engine. Integrating a completely new engine is quite a lot of work. Williams would win two races in the wet with Bootson in this season. Uh, and as I say, the second of those wins would be with the FW13 in Adelaide. But Ed, looking at Williams, this was only two seasons after they dominated both championships in 1987 with their final year with Honda Power. Given this was their f the first year of their new partnership with Renault, should they have been more ambitious than just going, right, let's just get the Renault engine in the back of the 88 car? Yeah, well, if Patrick Head thinks so, then who am I to argue? It was certainly strange because Williams had a reasonable run-up to 89 in terms of that Renault deal. It was announced in, I think, June the previous year. A Renault engine, Williams, first ran in October. But there was also quite a bit of distraction going on with the FW13. There was a, an active ride project that they... Uh, shelved for for that car and there were wind tunnel changes going on so I get the impression of a team that's not chaotic but I'm not sure that all the processes were in place for thinking everything through in the in the right way the FW12C wasn't too bad they did make a reasonable amount of changes to it it had to be a lot longer to fit the Renault engine in suspension tweaks lightweight gearbox lots of cooling changes as a result of the the engine and yeah, limited in its setup window, but it worked. It wasn't wasn't too bad. Petrazzi managed to stick it on pole in Hungary. But it does seem odd for a team like Williams not to pull out all the stops in trying to produce the, the best possible car. But, but the FW13 itself wasn't particularly brilliant, so I'm not sure that would have really helped. And given the trajectory they were on, Williams and Renault were going to achieve great things a few years down the line. Perhaps it was the right step, and it, and it was just a necessary interim year or two they had to go through on the way to becoming the team of the first half of the 90s. 
As we mentioned earlier, Tyrrell got one of its new 018 cars to Imola, giving it to lead driver Michele Alboreto, who was on home soil in Italy that weekend. The car was considered a big step forward aerodynamically to its predecessor, which Jonathan Palmer would be stuck with this weekend. But remarkably, Alboreto failed to qualify one year on from racing here in a Ferrari. He was one of three ex-Ferrari drivers to fail to make the grid, along with Stefan Johansson and René Arnoux for Onyx and Ligier, respectively. Palmer did manage to qualify with the old car, and this was despite Tyrrell bringing the wrong rear wing for it, meaning he had too much downforce and therefore too much drag down the straights. Shortly after Albretto was bumped out by Yannick Dalmas in the closing seconds of qualifying, Tyrrell quickly took the decision to switch Palmer into the new car for the race to at least turn it into a bit of a test session. And let's quickly hear another tale or two about what was going on behind the scenes with the new car that weekend from Tyrrell engineer Nigel Beresford, who spoke to Sam about it. McKaylee, and he was a lovely, lovely guy, really lovely guy, but he wasn't entirely happy. Um, for example, you know, he had he drove the 018 for its first race in, uh, or he was down to drive it for its first race at Imola, um, but we finished the car literally sort of two o'clock in the morning and all of the practice and qualifying sessions were taken up with debugging it. And, I, and as I say, I remember we were, we, <laughs> it was crazy. I mean, in Tyrrell's own very carry-on way, we had, uh, we had, we were doing things in the garage in the middle of the night at Imola, like Harvey wanted to uh, understand check on the the roll stiffness distribution of the car so he, he figured out that one of our truckies weighed about 100 kilograms so he had this guy hanging off the side of the car holding on to the rollover hoop whilst he took um he took corner weight scale measurements to try and understand how the roll stiffness was distributed on the car it was a sort of crazy wild wacky thing that Harvey would do but which also made him so much fun to be around um but at that at that Emila race um Michele didn't qualify uh Palmer somehow dragged the turgid old 017b into the race um and were, because of a quirk of the rules was allowed to change car and actually race the 018 so Started the race. Berger had his massive accident. Palmer said he'd had terrible understeer um, during the first part of the race. So we hooked up the bar and hey presto, the thing, it lit the thing up. And I think he finished fifth or whatever in that race. It certainly, um, certainly drove a great race. And all of a sudden, you know, all of the promise of the new era with Harvey and Jean-Claude started to come true. Sam, I think that's a great insight Nigel gave you there into uh, how ramshackle even the midfield of F1 could be in this era. But looking at Alberto, any sympathy for him for failing to make the grid with a brand new car? Um, oh, I think there were some majorly affecting circumstances in that first race for the, the 018. It hadn't turned a wheel prior to arriving in Imola and, and then he was compromised by a wet uh, first qualifying on the Friday and then he also got stranded out at Piratella after a an issue with the car. I think a, I think it was a fuel pump issue. 
that he had and lost a load of laps there too. But still, he, he couldn't get it together for whatever reason on Saturday and lost out by less than a tenth to Dalmas's Lola. He, I just, when you were reading that out, Glenn, who, had, who else hadn't qualified, I wonder if it's the only time in F1 history that three ex-Ferrari drivers were in the DNQ bracket with Reni Arno, Stephanie Hansen and Alboreto. That's, that's quite a curious one, isn't it, for a quiz sometime? But I suppose when you consider that Alboreto had been fettered by the Tifosi at, at Monza just six months prior to this race at Imola, you know, this rather ignominious DNQ must have been really hard to take for him. And he, there's no wonder he was pretty hacked off. In fact, it was Alberto's first DNQ since he raced for Tyrrell first time round at Hockenheim in, in 1981. So, yeah, not a great time for him. But and, and again, it must have stung a little bit and put some salt in the wounds when Palmer took the car to sixth place just 24 hours later. And uh, But it still did come good for, for Michele at Monaco. He got fifth at Monaco and then a podium in the next race at Mexico before that rather murky estrangement from the team a little later in the summer but yeah I think it all came down to that that Saturday qualifying and he I think the lack of laps in that car um in in qualifying trim just uh just counted against him one man who cut it surprisingly fine to get into this race was Johnny Herbert who'd started 10th and finished fourth on his F1 debut last time out in Brazil but Herbert was having a tough time of things at Imola with the injuries he'd suffered in his massive F3000 crash the year before. We won't talk about how his little stint with Benetton went in general, as we covered that in detail in our France 89 episode, because that was when Johnny was dropped. But Herbert had some interesting stuff to say about the Imola weekend in his book, so we will look at that. Johnny said, if you search the meaning of the phrase false dawn on the internet, one of the first results you're bound to see is the start of Johnny Herbert's F1 career. Back in the spring of 1989, I had no idea the walls were about to fall in. My Achilles heel was breaking, although I didn't accept this at first. In Rio, because of the way the track was laid out, I didn't have to brake a great deal, and in many cases I was able to use the gears. This meant that although I found it difficult, I didn't hear any alarm bells ringing, or if I did, I was just ignoring them. The next race at Imola was a bit of a disaster, and that was partly down to my attitude. I went over there thinking, this is a doddle. I'll just turn up and get myself in the points again. I didn't have the right attitude for a full Formula One season. Fail to prepare and you prepare to fail. Herbert did nearly score points again, running as high as sixth in the race. But he spun late on at Tosa and then completed what I can only describe as one of the worst rejoin attempts I've ever seen in F1 where he tries to spin the car around to rejoin and basically drive straight across the track into the gravel. Not Johnny's finest work, but he jokes now that he should have retired on race morning after he received a round of applause in the driver's briefing from the other drivers, which was initiated by FISA president Jean-Marie Belest in acknowledgement of his result in Brazil. So Ed, after the highs of Rio, how much of a wake-up call was this weekend for Herbert? It was certainly the start of the process of him really coming to terms with how much trouble I think he was in, because that Brazil result was a was a miracle. But I think it took him quite a long time to realise how much his career and even his, his life, because it still affects him to this day, would be affected by that that accident. Obviously, he understands it writing in his book but that's with the benefit of uh, plenty of time to understand it have the whole career and think about it uh, for a bit so yeah I think at this point you've got Johnny Herbert who's 
being confronted with some of the problems and trying to get his head around it, shall we say. But he'd, had, he'd done that important job in Brazil of, of showing he could broadly still do it. But I suspect Imola wasn't necessarily the lowest point, as we talk about later on. Uh, what, what, no, as we talked about previously on Bring Back V10s, it didn't go so well with, uh, with Benetton in the end. And again, it comes down to the fact that with Johnny Herbert's whole career, what he did after that accident was a minor miracle to win three Grand Prix and have the career he did doesn't really make a great deal of sense. And you can't just help but wonder what a fully fit Herbert would have done in that car. It's one of those unanswerable questions. I think even he can't answer that. But as he said, he was always a driver that struggled with braking. That's why he was a better racer than than qualifier. But yeah, well, it's, it's the start of the wake-up call, but I think that was quite a long process. Let's get to the race then, because behind the all-McLaren front row, led by Senna, Mansell was the best of the rest in third, 1.6 seconds back, and Patrese's Williams in fourth was the only other car within two seconds of pole. Berger and Bootsen lined up on row three, with Alessandro Nanini's Benetton and Nelson Piquet's Lotus completing a top eight that was covered by three seconds the start of the race was largely uneventful, <clears throat> although we'll come back to why that was in a moment. Then at the start of the fourth lap, we had the terrifying sight Sam described earlier of Berger's Ferrari going straight on at Tamburello, slamming into the concrete wall and then sliding along the grass until it eventually came to rest and burst into flames. Now, Sam, we've already touched on this briefly, but it's not well, not over-dramatising this to say that it looked like we could be witnessing a fatal accident here. Yeah, it was completely appalling. I mean, just the impact itself looked devastating. Then there was that eerie split second before the flash fire consumed what was left of the wreck. And, you know, when you look back at it and you listen to it, it even caught Murray Walker by, well, not just by surprise, but just the, you know, the devastation of the situation that he had to commentate on live to the likes of me and my old man sat having our Sunday dinner. So... It was it was horrendous. Uh, a few years ago, I did a quite a detailed piece on this weekend and and Berger's accident, um, and, and I actually tracked down the fire marshals that saved Berger that day. They became known as the Lions of Imola, and I think they deserve a, a mention and and to be named. Actually, they were Paolo Verdi, Bruno Miniati, and Gabriele Vivoli. And the standard marshals post at the exit of Tamburello was called Three C. They all had a consolidated intervention strategy not to get in each other's way if there was a serious accident such as Berger's. And the distance between the site of the crash or where Berger came to rest uh, on fire and Marshall's Post 3C was later measured at 87 metres. But despite the considerable distance that Vivoli had to get to, he started emptying his extinguisher on the fire just 14 and a half seconds after the Ferrari had come to a halt, which when you think about it, is remarkable. And, and he was running towards the accident before it had actually ignited, before before Berger had come to a stop. So massive respect for, for what they did that day. But but even after it, the fire was extinguished and there was no movement from the cockpit, there just seemed so little chance that Berger could have survived that accident, um, the, the impact and obviously then the fire without being gravely injured. And, and Miniati told me actually that, he remembered seeing Berger after the, um, or just as the fire was was being dissipated, seeing Berger's helmet uh, bubbling in the heat. He he actually saw that, uh, which is just absolutely horrendous. So, uh, you know, a massive, um, a massive effort to save him, and, and thankfully it did. But it, a complete miracle that he got out of that. 
I think the thing that's often forgotten, you mentioned the size of the initial impact, it's very, very difficult to see how badly damaged the structure of the car is because they start cutting it about to get Berger out. But there's a few points where you can see how much damage there is and how exposed Berger actually is. That's the thing that always amazes me about that crash. Everyone talks about the fire, and with good reason, but it's amazing he was still in play without some proper serious injuries even before the fire started. Yeah, there are a couple of incredible images from a photographer who was stationed very close to where the car came to a stop. And you you get a much better, when you see those photos, if you Google them, you get a much better idea for the dynamics of this crash and how, as Ed said there, how exposed Berger was, how the car had started to break up around him and how you know, he, he even ended up on its side. I, I can't, I'm not sure, Sam, if it rolled entirely, but there was a lot more going on here than just a car plowing into a wall and then coming to a rest, uh, wheels up and bursting into flames. Yeah, th- those images um, are extraordinary, actually. Um, the, the the chassis, the, the, sorry, the monocoque broke on the right side and, and the image shows the car kind of leaning at an angle, as you described, and Berger's torso completely exposed and kind of flailing around in it. Thankfully, the, the belts um, kept him to the, to the bulkhead of the car. But when, when you consider the, the violence of that, impact against what is what was a concrete wall i mean we're so used to tech pro now aren't we or you know at the, the weekend with verstappen hitting some tires is, is bad enough but that was a solid solid concrete wall which was placed um because beyond it was a bank going down to the santerno river so it, you know it had to be a pretty forceful barrier from that perspective but to to actually have that accident you know when you look at the amount or the lack of grass runoff there was no gravel there was no high density tarmac of course in those days it was just grass and whether the grass was damp or whether it was parched through the sun it wasn't going to check much momentum so when you consider that Berger would have been approaching that corner at 100 and let's say conservative estimate would have been 185 miles an hour um, I, I reckon he probably scrubbed off 20 or 25 before he hit the wall so to have an impact, even though it was a quite a shallow angle, it was no wonder that the that the monocoque fractured. Because again, remember that this was the still the pioneering days of of um, of composite technology. So I think we'll come on to the fact that that John Barnard was involved in the design of that car uh, and how much that influenced the the survival of Berger a bit later. But certainly that was all contributing to to thankfully him being able to survive such a horrendous accident. Yeah, at the time, Berger described it as an accident no one should have survived. He's since recalled the accident in great detail on a few occasions. And a couple of years ago, he did so on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast with Tom Clarkson that we like to give shout outs to here. And in that, he said when he got to the hospital and went over all the thoughts he had from the crash, he assumed the runoff must have been huge because he had so much time to think about it before it happened. He said he'd noticed the right front wheel had popped up in the air. So he thought, what's happened here? And then he checked his rear tyres in the mirrors because he thought he must have a puncture. But they looked fine, and he still had time to think about how bad the angle was uh, going to be And when he, by the time he hit the wall. Then he said, shortly before the impact, I thought it's better to put your hands away from the steering wheel, and that's what I did. I put them on my shoulders and waited for the big bang. Berger has admitted in pretty much every interview he's ever given about this crash, including those straight after it, well, 
straight after he came out of hospital, that he was in so much pain in the ambulance, he vowed never to race again because he thought you don't get away with many accidents like that. But an hour or two later, he'd already changed his mind. Sam, given what we've discussed around this accident, could even a driver considered as tough as Gerhard Berger be forgiven if he had quit on the spot that day? Absolutely, he could have been forgiven. You know, I consider Berger's career as two parts, really, pre-Imola 89 and, and post-Imola 89. Prior to the shunt, he was he, he had that lunatic element in him, for sure. I mean, he was incredibly quick, but he, he did take remarkable chances. I mean, if you've never seen it, check out Hockenheim in 1988 when he elects to keep his foot planted to the gas while taking Eddie Cheever on the straight, the link straight to the back to the stadium. It must have been 200 miles an hour. And he spins the car. And it's it's only a miracle, miracle chance that he, he doesn't have a, a major accident on that occasion. So he'd, he, you know, he'd had some of the cards already going for him in, in incidents such as that. And there were, there were several more. So after him in 89, he still kind of had that devil may care attitude, but it was diluted to a reasonable degree, I think. And there's little surprise in that, I guess, when you've been through that kind of trauma. He turned up at Monaco just two weeks later after the accident and wandered the paddock with heavily bandaged hands, which were pretty badly burnt, actually. He had a broken rib and I think a, a, a cracked shoulder blade as well. I think in the, t- the context of what we saw with Roman Grosjean's shunt last season, that there's, there's no way that Berger should have even raced at Mexico City, which was just a month later. But... As you know, as we often say, times times were very different uh, back then. I, I think there are two things that saved Berger from a psychological point of view that day at Imola. Firstly, it was his kind of natural irreverent demeanour, which he's always had in him in his character, which seems to ensure that he doesn't take life too seriously. You know, he's noted for his um, his character traits from that department. The second is that he doesn't actually remember the the fire, which was was a um, a blessing, wasn't it? I mean, he was knocked out on the impact in the impact, and then woke up, as you said, Glenn, in the ambulance. That means he had no recollection of being trapped or immersed in the fire, which of course would have been completely traumatic. There are some extraordinary photos, as we mentioned, and I think you know when he subsequently looked back at them, it, it must have been interesting to him because, like I said, he was unconscious and then was brought round by um, by the doctors. It, it's one of the fascinating aspects of racing drivers, isn't it, that they can return to the cockpit after these hideous shunts and in Berger's case I think it would have it would have all seemed like it had happened to someone else to some extent um at the time he lost consciousness anyway in that in that sort of critical part of the the accident so the real challenge came when he was recuperating in hospital a few days and and weeks afterwards before he went back and, and saw the the cars in action in action at Monaco. So, yeah, there's a lot of processes to go through there. But I think Berger's character traits, going back to them, I think that that certainly helped him get get back on the horse, as they say. Yeah, I think his his first memory in the aftermath of the crash is is, is vaguely sort of waking up and having Sid Watkins on top of him trying to get an airway into him. But Berger's change of heart about stopping on the spot was helped by the fact that he'd been cleaned up at the hospital and his fears that he'd sustained burns all over his body turned out not to be the case. He did have bad burns to his hands, and this was partly because he'd cut the Nomex out of the inside of his gloves to get a better feel for the steering wheel. But fortunately for 1989, he'd made the decision to start wearing another layer of fireproofs under his overalls rather than a Marlboro t-shirt as he'd been doing 
up to then. But the rest of the pain he'd been feeling on his skin was just because he was covered in what he called aggressive fuel that was being used at the time. As well as F1 using what I think we can quite safely call Larry fuel concoctions at this time, the fuel tanks themselves were already in the spotlight, with the smaller turbo engines being replaced by bigger engines with more cylinders for 1989. Teams running V10 or V12 engines had been reluctant to extend their wheelbase out of fear of losing chassis stiffness, so the fuel tanks were being pushed outwards and around the side of the drivers. More stringent protection and crash testing, including the fuel tank, had already been put forward as part of a raft of rule changes agreed by the new F1 Design Commission that weekend, but this accident just put it further into the spotlight. Ed, fuel tanks spread out and coming around the driver, should that ever have been allowed in the first place? Simple answer, no. Uh, there had been some rules in the past forcing the fuel tank to be behind the driver, but I think at this stage, as long as they were within the structure of the car, it was allowed. But obviously, as we explained, the structure of the car quite rapidly dismantled itself uh, on impact, which caused the the problem. So yeah, the, the, the geometries that you're allowed to use and the place you could put the fuel uh, bladders were, were changed in the rules in the future. And I think I think this is the last time that a fuel t- a fuel tank in F1 has actually ruptured. We've had fuel outside of the fuel tank, and in the Grosjean crash, it got outside of the fuel tank because of the, ha- the way the hatch disconnected. But I think the fuel bladder itself was intact after uh, the, the impact. So that was a sensible rule change. And yeah, I imagine there's quite a few drivers after Berger's crash who have reason to be thankful for the way things changed because fire became so rare. Although with that fuel around, it's always possible, as Roman Grosjean demonstrated recently. Let's move on to two other key men affected by this accident and what went through their minds, and that's car designer John Barnard and Berger's teammate Nigel Mansell. We'll start with Barnard because this was his car. Talking about the crash in his book, which is excellent, he said, I went cold. I was horrified at the thought that I might have killed a driver. He was on fire. I was shaken and I'd already made up my mind. If he had died, I was out of the business. I would have quit on the spot. The cause of the crash was a broken front wing, which Barnard said had snapped upwards, probably because Berger had been hitting the kerbs. But Barnard said it was his fault, as he'd only calculated the strength of the wing mounting based on resisting the downward push of aerodynamic force, not considering if it could withstand an upward shock. And those were Barnard's words. He also blamed a rule change that deemed flexible front wing end plates to be illegal, as he said, that made the wings too stiff and put more pressure on the mounting. But ultimately, he said the miscalculation was his mistake. However, Berger to this day is grateful to Barnard, and he has since said, that car saved my life because John made it so strong and safe. So Sam, is Barnard being a bit tough on himself here, particularly given that Berger was probably saved by sitting in a carbon fibre monocoque, which Barnard had pioneered earlier in the decade with McLaren. Yeah, I think so to some extent, because ultimately the tub clearly went a long way to saving Gerhard's life that day. And you have to remember that, again, as I said before, in the late 80s, composites knowledge was still um, developing. Uh, It was only a year later, wasn't it, when Martin Donnelly had his career-ending accident or his top-line career ending accident at Hereth. And if you see uh, what happened in that accident with the the, the complete disintegration of the uh, survival cell, you, you, you look at you look at how brittle those cars were. And if you hit the wrong angle and there was no, and you went off at the wrong place, which Donnelly certainly did, 
then um, anything could happen. And I, I think that an engineer's biggest fear, as, as Barnard attested, is something of their control contributing to an accident to begin with. And that appeared to be the case to some extent here with that that rule change, rule change, and the fact that the the wing actually broke at the at the root or at the um, the mounting point of the of the front wing. So miscalculations do happen, but when they have their roots in a rules change anyway, then I think there's there's some mitigating factors and circumstances there. The interesting part of it was that Barnard had been such a pioneer of the composites design revolution. So I guess that. When you have a shunt of that magnitude in any car, then having one in a in a Barnard car and the way that that has been uh, laminated and the way that it has been um, finite element and, and analysed, which kind of came on a bit later into the 90s, but was done to some degree uh, pre-Katia, the, the design system that was used on, on race cars in the 90s in particular, then I think actually the fact that Berger says that the car saved his life is is true but you can understand why barnard was uh self-critical to the extent of of worrying that that, that his mistake had had caused the accident in the first place so I, i'd i'd say that it was a it was a a good outcome to a bad situation obviously that, that developed with with a lot of different circumstances in the accident itself Let's move on to Mansell then. Uh, in his book that was released in the mid 90s he said thinking about that day at Imola still gave him goosebumps He'd not seen the accident as it happened behind him, but when he did, he was horrified. Mansell said things were heated in the Ferrari pits as the team had to decide if he could take the restart, despite not knowing at that point what caused Berger's accident. Mansell said he felt better once he'd seen Berger and knew that his life wasn't in danger. Nigel wrote, As I made my way back to the motorhome, people were talking to me, but I didn't see them or hear them. I do recall running into James Hunt, who said there was no way I should drive as it was too dangerous. I went inside the motorhome and it was like a madhouse. All kinds of wild things were being said and in the middle of it all, Barnard was being put under this impossible pressure. I couldn't listen to any more of that, so I came away and made the decision that I would restart. I knew it was very risky given that we didn't know why Gerhard had crashed, but from what I had heard, I felt that if I didn't give Barnard the vote of confidence then the team would suffer in the long term. I don't feel particularly brave, although I might well have thought someone else stupid for doing the same thing. You just have to judge the situation as it appears to you and let your instincts guide you. And Barnard has said that Mansell came up to him and said, tell me it's okay and I'm back in the car and away. And Barnard told him, as far as I know, there isn't a problem with the car. It's okay. Mansell did take the restart and he admitted he was relieved when his gearbox failed after 23 laps. Ed, is a scenario like that for team and driver, is that a situation where there's there's no right answer, basically? Unfortunately, although very, very occasionally there can be, if you do understand exactly what's happened, usually you don't have the time or the data available to really know what's gone on. So you can just go on probabilities. So yeah, all Barnard could do is give his honest appraisal that there was nothing as far as he knew that was fundamentally wrong that, that caused it. Ultimately, it falls on the driver, doesn't it? And more often than not, we do see the driver takes the the risk. Drivers are quite good at disconnecting the little bit of their brain that contains the the memory of the crash when they're, when they're in the car. But Mansell, to his credit, did also engineer in a little bit of a margin in the way he was driving, both at Tamburello and in terms of the way he attacked the curbs. There's some quite 
vicious curbs, at, quite steep curbs at, at uh, Imola at that time. So I think Mansell was right to do that. And off, obviously, as we know, there was the problem with the, with the wing, the way it failed. And in fact, even after they'd strengthened it, I think Mansell had a similar failure at Monaco with nothing like the same consequences. So... Yeah, that there was a, a risk, so perhaps Mansell was right to be relieved. But it, it was clear that the failure would only happen when it was pretty heavily loaded and there were some big spike loads going through it. So, yeah, th- there is no right answer. But, of course, Mansell was going to race, wasn't he? Because he's Nigel Mansell. On to the restart then. And at the front, Prost got the better start and beat Senna off the line this time, only for Senna to retake the lead on the run down to Tosa. Prost was incensed by this as he felt Senna had broken an agreement they had not to race each other on the rundown to the first braking zone of the lap, an agreement Prost had respected on the first start when it was Senna that had got away in the lead. He hounded Senna throughout the race until making a very uncharacteristic error and spinning at the final chicane with 12 laps to go just after he'd set the fastest lap. Speaking in the book Senna vs Prost by Malcolm Folly, which we'll quote quite a lot from this point on, Prost said, I was much quicker than Senna through this race, but I couldn't drive well. I drove one of my worst races. I was so furious. When I came in second, I saw Senna smiling and all I felt was anger. I have to say, Prost didn't look that angry on the podium. If you look at the footage, he's actually laughing when Senna's struggling to pop the cork on his champagne bottle. But after the podium, Prost stormed off skipping the post-race press conference and picking up a $5,000 fine for that. Sam, before we get on to the broken agreement, how many other Alain Prost spins in a Grand Prix can you think of? Because of all of this, that was perhaps the most un-Prost thing that happened this day. Yes, it was. I mean, an angry Prost. Whenever did we see an angry Prost? Not very often. And there weren't many errors, as you say. Monaco 82 when he pinballed it off the barriers after the chicane. Interlagos, 93. I mean, they were weather-affected as well. So Imola actually seems to have been the place where he did make some errors. 1991, he spun on the formation lap when um, in his first home race, uh, sorry, in in that race, and, and then obviously Berger went off as well. But again, that was some circumstances maybe beyond his control. This seems to be a race where it was just a, a rare instance of Prost not being able to to build a race, which is the most un-Prost-like thing that you can think of, isn't it? The, the spin was really just, I suppose, a legacy, I think, of that anger. And no doubt in his mind already was the perceived Senna treachery, which we'd seen at Tosa. And actually, although completely different, I can see some similarities to what we've begun to witness with Verstappen and, and, and Hamilton now in the sense that there was this feeling of inevitability wasn't there about Senna and Prost they'd had a generally cordial 88 although there were, there were some flashpoints as mentioned uh, particularly at Estoril but at the beginning of that season 89 there was this brewing sense of that there was going to be some there were going to be some more clashes and it, and it built up to a crescendo of course at Suzuka at the end of the season but in the race itself Prost just he, he got a little bit compromised by back markers I mean remember this was before the the blue flag nannying that we that we get now so it was a, it was a different 
a different thing then. He was he was especially compromised by Thierry Bootsen, who was running in fourth place at, at that time. And, and then he had his spin on lap 47, cost him eight seconds. And it, it just became a, a snowball effect that really the race was out of his control, which I think for somebody like Prost and even people watching him and, and, and his team would have been completely nonplussed about because it was just such a, a, a rarity from somebody who was perceived to be a, a prof- the, the professor and and the master. So, yeah, all very unprost-like, but the, the ripples from that so-called broken agreement, I think, really just exacerbated his frustration during the race. I bet Senna thought, job done. Angry Prost, spinning, not coming to the press conference, brilliant. Yeah, and we'll come back to Senna's side of the story in a bit. But first, let's look deeper into why Prost was so annoyed So Prost has claimed that the idea for the drivers not to race each other at the start was suggested by Senna. In the Senna versus Prost book, which is interesting because it came out before the Senna film was made, and really that film and the way Prost was portrayed, uh, despite cooperating um, with the filmmakers, it's made Alan a lot more wary of speaking about the rivalry today. So that's why the book is so interesting. Um, And he said, we had this agreement two or three times and it always worked. On the restart, we were first and second. For me, the race was going to start after the after the corner, so after Tosa. There was no need to take a risk, and then boom, Senna went inside me. I was furious. Joe Ramirez, a longtime McLaren servant who somehow managed to maintain a close relationship with both drivers during this period, said Prost stormed out after the race because he was so hot with anger that he would have said things that might he might later have regretted. And he reckons that if Prost had stayed to discuss it there and then, in Ramirez's words, there could have been fists thrown. I have a suspicion that Senna maybe knew something was up. As unprompted in the press conference, he does offer this slightly limp explanation about having to attack Prost as he was worried about Nigel Mansell's Ferrari close behind them. But Mansell was actually fifth by that point, having not made a very good start. No one else inside McLaren knew about the agreement before the race. Steve Nichols, who was Senna's engineer at the time, uh, said in the book called Alain Prost McLaren uh, that we've quoted before, that Senna probably used the fact it was a restart as a technical get-out clause, but everyone inside the team accepted that if there was an agreement, Senna should have stuck to it. So Sam, what do you think then? Was there any defence for what Senna did? Not really in the sense of what you call truth and fairness, but, you know, and sticking to your word, but as we know, such things are not black and white in Formula One, are they? Especially at that level. I think it just shows how ruthless Senna was, but you had to, you had to be, to be Prost teammate and to get one over Alan Prost, you, you had to be ruthless. And, and Senna evidenced that. Remember that this is the same driver, Senna, who, when he was presented with the overhead images of the Suzuka 1990 shunt, he, he refuted them, basically saying, you know, they must be fakes or they must have been tampered with. You know, he was, he, was, he, he was in a different reality, his own reality. And I think the early evidence of that was this um, technical get-out of Steve Nichols very uh, purported it um, very well, I think. And I think in hindsight... And since Senna's untimely death, it's, you know, this this perception has metamorphosed into a sort of deity stroke legend. And the reality was he was a obviously a, a, an exceptional racing driver, but he was a real ruthless operator. And I think this is a case study in how ruthless he could be. That That's not to say that you should love him 
or remember him any less for it. Absolutely not. But let's look at the facts. He would do anything to win. And that included occasionally um, bending the truth or, or, or out and out cheating, which, which he did at Suzuka a year later, didn't he? So it's, it, it's complex. I think in Senna's mind, he had this narrative it wound Prost up. And I think actually the fact that Prost's race fell apart at Imola kind of was a, a almost a byproduct of what Senna, the, the, the bigger picture that Senna was forming at that stage, knowing that the team wasn't big enough for both of them and that he had to deploy certain tactics to make sure that um, if the team wasn't big enough for both of them, then, you know, he was the one who was, he was the one who was going to uh, maximise that space in the team and, and, and Prost would have to look elsewhere. And I think really that's what we saw um, in this early incident of, of controversy between the two of them. We should point out that this, that as Sam mentioned earlier, there was a backdrop of simmering tension between the two already. And often Senna's swerve towards Prost at Estoril in 1988 is considered the trigger for this rivalry getting out of hand. But Prost has said on several occasions that while that moment was on the limit, they were fine with each other once they'd spoken about it. Uh, but as we talked about a bit in our France 1989 episode, where Prost announced he was leaving McLaren, he was also upset with what he felt was preferential treatment Senna was getting from Honda and from the team as Senna was allowed to spend most of the winter in Brazil while Prost did all the testing. Word of the fallout didn't break immediately and things were still yet to get totally out of hand by the Sunday night. In the week after Imola, Senna and Prost were testing at Pembrey in Wales and whenever I hear this story, I love the idea of the best F1 team in the world doing its testing there. And Ron Dennis turned up to this test by helicopter. Ron didn't normally attend a test like this, so everybody there knew something was up. Ron took both drivers into the truck that was on site, although I've also seen it described as a caravan, firstly to find out what on earth was going on, but also to read the drivers the riot act. So let's hear Ron's account of what happened. And this is from the Sky Sports Ayrton Senna special that ran in 2014 to commemorate 20 years since his death. They started to argue almost like two petulant children, really. I, I mean, I was looking at them thinking, you know, this is this behavior isn't befitting. And I lost it a little bit and I ramped the pressure and they still didn't get it that, you know, effectively the team had to come first. It, it just had to understand the team had to come first. We gave them equality, their behavior had to be consistent with the values of the team. You know, in the end, I pushed so hard, I, uh, you know, I tipped them into um, uh, you know, a very, very um, emotional state. Uh, they were, they didn't look like anything other than very frightened children at the time. But I think the consequences were again, they, they reached for their, uh, their national, respective national press, it fueled it. I mean, it was smouldering after the race, but I had it in control and then it got really fueled. In Prost's account of this meeting, he has said a few times that Senna accepted there was an agreement, but he then accused Prost of overtaking him. In the Senna versus Prost book, Prost said, Ron said to Ayrton, we have to fix the problem we had on Sunday. Ayrton offered all kinds of excuses. Ron was not taken by this. Then Ayrton started to cry. He had lied. He was convinced he was right. Maybe he cried because he realised he was wrong and he lost his honour. Senna was forced to apologise to Prost, which he was not happy about at all. And crucially, it was agreed that what went on in that meeting 
would never be spoken about to anyone else. Um, and that's where we're going to come to shortly. So, Ed, hearing what Ron has said there and, and, and Prost's account of it, what do you make of how Ron tried to handle this and tried to get it back under control? I think it's to his credit he tried to manage the situation and was happy to address it head on. Perhaps it was a little bit theatrical helicoptering in, made it all very obvious, and it clearly didn't work very well. It's very tempting to cast Ron Dennis as the scolding schoolmaster fanning the flames, but I think ultimately it was out of his hands. You've got two all-time great drivers, both have the force of Willard champions, they're both by this stage in the mindset this team isn't big enough for the two of us, so I don't think you can do anything really to, to prevent that happening. I don't doubt he could have done things a little bit better. And as he put it, ramping up the pressure and, and getting angry probably didn't really help matters. But I think even if he'd done the impossible and extinguished the flames, it would have just reignited some other way. Something else would have happened. Those two were on a collision course, quite literally, as it turned out. And I'm not convinced that any human being or, or deity, for that matter, could have prevented it. And the drama, as we've hinted at, doesn't end there. What happened next was something that Prost admits uh, was a huge mistake. Prost told a French journalist he was close friends with about the meeting. He said it was all off the record and that he couldn't tell him many details, but one thing he did give away was that Senna cried. Now, despite that chat being off the record, the journalist then wrote the story, which ran in Le Keep in France, and it even included quotes from Prost, including a line where he said, at a level of technical discussion, I shall not close the door completely, but for the rest, I no longer wish to have any business with him. I appreciate honesty, and he is not honest. Senna found out about this, and now he was the one that was furious. In the Sky Sports special about Senna, Joe Ramirez said Senna told him, I don't want to hear anything about that French guy. He has called me things in the press that I don't deserve. He should say it to my face, but he doesn't. He says it in the press. And even in public, actually, Senna would, would tell the media that they were finished. Ramirez added in the Senna versus Prost book that the Lequeep story was the end of their relationship. Joe said, it wasn't pleasant. After this, Ayrton never called Prost by his name again. He would only refer to Alan as him or worse. McLaren insiders reckon that beyond an occasional hello, the Pembrey discussion was the last time Senna and Prost had a proper conversation with each other. Amazingly, by the time they got to the Monaco Grand Prix, the next race, Prost didn't know about the Lequeep article. He said in the Senna versus Prost book that Senna was ignoring him in Monaco and he had no idea why. Prost said, we just had this strange ambience. Then someone told me about a story, uh, the, the story about the meeting in Pembrey had been published in Lequeep. I had not seen it myself. And when I did see the story, it was really nothing. But I was furious with the writer and he told me he made a mistake. Ayrton and me had many problems, but I could not expect one of the worst to come in this way. So Sam, Prost obviously had a large element of trust with his closest allies in the French media, but to, to, to go back on the agreement not to tell anyone about this discussion, how big an error was this from Prost? And was Senna within his rights to feel so aggrieved? Yeah, it was all getting a bit playground at this stage, wasn't it? I, I'm not entirely convinced it was an error from Prost. You know, he says he didn't know about the Lakeep piece. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. I'm, I'm pretty certain that the author of of that feature was was Johnny Reeve, who was a seasoned, respected journalist and with a big publication with Lakeep. Um, and he was on the inner sanctum of the Prost camp. Um, 
So for Alan to describe its publication as a mistake, I, it just seems, it just feels a bit flimsy that he didn't think that that was going to be published or he had some agreement with, with Reeve that it wouldn't be published. I wouldn't be surprised if it was a, a ploy and an effort to get an equaliser over Senna for what happened at, at Imola. I mean, it's it's unsubstantiated, but that if you looked at it a certain way, that's what it could feel like. Uh, this seemed to do initially as Ayrton completely had ignored his teammate in Monaco. It seemed to backfire spectacularly because Senna then went out and completely destroyed Prost in every single session at Monaco. I mean, including taking pole by 1.1 second. So I suppose the 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 kind of what you what you call the the key lesson from that was, you know, don't wind Senna up to that extent because he did he did thrive on conflict, as Prost said himself in in that season. It was also a, a crucial time in the McLaren camp as well. And, and Monaco was the first time that Prost met with Cesare Fiorio to talk about the future. So I think that was quite key as well. Imola was obviously the trigger for, for that to happen to that extent. So I guess the lesson here, like I said, was that don't wind up the guy in the yellow helmet. And, and that's what Prost seemed to have done. Now, whether that was by, by design or whether that was by um, Prost taking his eye off the ball and, and, and not realising, I, I, I don't know. I, I tend to think that it could have been the former. Should Senna have been aggrieved? Um, yes, in that context, in isolation. But of course... This was a this this was episode after episode, all within the period of two weeks between Imola and, and Monaco. Absolutely fascinating period of F1. But again, I, I just think it was just never going to work out between them. And, and once it went, which was with that agreement at, at Imola, it was just pouring bucket after bucket of of, of petrol onto a onto a fire and, and it was it was never going to get extinguished yeah and I must say that um, we, we obviously won't drift too far into what happened at Monaco but there was lots of uh, lots more coverage that uh, when we do a Monaco 89 episode we'll uh, we'll pick up this story again but you've probably noticed that up to this point we still haven't really given Senna's side of the Imola agreement so let's now get to that in full because in a brilliant twist Senna decided to tell all to the French newspaper, Prost had leaked the initial Pembry story to in the first place. So this is what Senna said in, of all places, Le Keep. Uh, he said, last year at Imola, so 1988, Prost had suggested that we should not attack each other on the first bend of a Grand Prix. It was his idea. I had never found myself in this kind of situation before, and I said, OK. We respected this agreement for several races. Then, as our relationship deteriorated, we stopped doing so. This year, after the winter break, we were on more friendly terms. Then came Imola. I remembered the agreement of the previous year, and I put the question to myself, what should we do about the first bend? Alan replied to me, the same as 88. So that was the situation. On the first start, there was no problem. I was in front. On the second, after Berger's accident, he got off to a better start than me. But I got in his slipstream and accelerated quickly. I was going faster than him, then I started the manoeuvre to overtake him. Not at the first corner, before that. It was when we were braking that we were not allowed to attack each other. We had a momentary confrontation and then I drove clear. The original idea was simple. No overtaking as we braked on the first bend. After the race, I had a clear conscience. I didn't think that the whole thing would take on such proportions. 
So, uh, Ed, there's the loophole that Senna was clinging to at the time. What do you think of that version of events? It does sound gloriously disingenuous, doesn't it? <laughs> it's like we've got this agreement, but there's all these sorts of technicalities. When did it start the move? <laughs> it's got the idea of the two of them charging down towards the the first the first well the first contested braking zone corner, shall we put it? Consulting their list of what circumstances they can all do. The small print. <laughs> Exactly. It, it just doesn't ring true. He's looking for technicalities and get-outs, isn't he? And I imagine it was the same with the idea that, that was suggested that maybe he also uh, claimed internally that uh, because it was a restart, it didn't apply. Th- these are these are technical arguments, aren't they? And I have no doubt he knew he wasn't in the right, or perhaps even he convinced himself he was in the right. He was a very single-minded character. But it's just part of the ruthlessness that Sam referenced. So I kind of get where Senna's coming from. But I don't really buy a side of the story uh, on this. And clearly, ethically, as far as we can tell from all the evidence, Senna was in the wrong. But in a way, I quite like the fact he's done it and I quite like the fact he's trying to defend it because there's this whole wider context of these two are trying to basically make the team their own, aren't they? So it's all part of that wider landscape. So just finally, uh, let's let's have our, our final say and give, try and give a verdict on this. So taking in the whole saga around Imola 89, including the fallout, so what, what Senna did, and then the, the fallout from Prost going to the French press, without looking at the rest of their relationship, how would you both apportion blame across the two drivers for what we now consider the total breakdown of this relationship? So Sam, you can go first. How would, how would you split it up? I think they have to take equal blame. To, to a great extent because that they, they were both I mean that they weren't rookies you know they it wasn't the case of Hamilton coming in in, in 2007 fresh from the junior formula um and working his way into a team and understanding how things work this was two at that time reasonably seasoned top performers so they have to take some element of of the of the blame here I think actually there's a great claim for Imola 89 being one of the most seismic moments in F1 history and the kind of butterfly effect of, of how things went on there. there. There are two narratives that I think are remarkable. Firstly, the terminal damage to the relationship between Senna and Prost, and it accelerated this feud that was always coming and caused Prost to realise he could not continue in the same team as, as Senna. In terms of blame, the spark was ignited by Senna, but the situation was so naturally combustible anyway that pretty much anything would have set it off i don't think pross handled it that well for such a season professional as i mentioned but he was put in an impossible situation as soon as senna made that decision to grab the line into into tosa i think i think it's genuinely a shared split in terms of blame for the stream team to die in the way that it did but the second narrative which is interesting too i think includes the most extraordinary and quite spooky twist of fate as well which is a kind of backstory to it but if you think about it that Prost and Senna feud wouldn't have happened at that time or would have been delayed it would have happened as we've we've all talked about at some stage but it wouldn't have happened then had it not been for Berger's shunt and I spoke to Gerhard about this in, in 2014 and he told me the most extraordinary story which was that three or four months after the Imola race there was a tyre test at the same track and he and Senna on Ayrton's insistence walked up to Tamburello to see what could be changed and if the runoff could be pushed back for safety reasons. Because there'd already been those shunts of PK in 87, and then there'd be other ones, obviously, um, coming in the 90s. They both looked at the wall, peered over it, and saw the river, the Santana River, which ran behind it, 
And they've looked at each other and, and kind of shrugged and thought, oh, well, there's, there's nothing we can do. And they returned to the pits and carried on testing. When you when you think about that and you, and you process all that, and then you jump forward four and a half years, and everything that happened between Senna and Prost and that incredible rivalry, it, it just gives you a bit of a shudder, doesn't it? And I think it's just a remarkable part of Formula One history in terms of the intensity and ultimately, when you look back at it, and I'm sure when Alan looks back at it with the the, the blankets of time, like uh, you could say that he would probably think, yes, we, we both could have handled things much better. And they, they both had to apportion a bit of the blame towards themselves, too. It's a good point about um, the river at Imola, because I'd heard about that when they when they changed Tamburello to a chicane. And then when I first went there to watch the 2001 San Marino Grand Prix, I did, you know, in the days before Google Earth, um, it wasn't easy to find out how close that river was. And I thought I've got to go and I've got to go and see the the center stuff that's on the on the barrier behind the barrier, the, the kind of memorial stuff that's there. But I also wanted to see just how close that river was, it kind of in a way of come on, they must have been able to do something. And it is unfortunately really close. So, Ed. Sam says equal blame. And I think in the end, we got to the point there where that was 45% Senna, 45% Prost and 10% Berger for having the crash. Uh, how are you breaking it down? I broadly agree with uh, with what Sam said. I might make it 60-40 Senna-Prost in that Senna did a few more of the, the trigger points, but boy, did Prost start to run with them when he could with what he said to the press, etc. And so, yeah, I think both had a, had a very significant stake in it. Both could have mitigated it, but I think this was certainly the point where neither really wanted to ease it. It was a, it was effectively a, a in terms of the McLaren driver, a fight for there only to be one man left standing in that team. So of course, Senna prevailed from that perspective. So yeah, a fraction more blame on Senna, but ultimately Prost would only have been happy if he had a a nice compliant number two teammate. I imagine anyway. So yeah, both clearly have a stake. And these these are the battles that you want to see in in Formula One. Just because I give Senna a tiny bit more blame doesn't stand really as a criticism. It's all part of the game. Yeah, and it's brilliant. And Formula One got a lot out of this rivalry in terms of exposure and uh, and audience growth. That's it for Imola '89. Then hopefully for those of you who didn't know some of the backstory to the Senna Prost rivalry, we've put a bit more meat on the bones for you. We'll get to the other big. Senna Prost controversies in future series. I am asked about them quite regularly by some of our listeners, but we felt it was important to go back to what kicked it all off in the first place before we get our hands dirty on the two Suzuka collisions. And uh, Sam and Ed have both mentioned there that this was all about the drivers pushing for supremacy within the team and trying to make it effectively a one-man team. It was only sort of three or four months later that Prost decided to leave McLaren and went public with that. And we have discussed that already in our France 89 episode, which you can find back in our feed. So if you do want to take the story on a little bit and you've not listened to all of our episodes yet, go and find that one because there was a lot more that Alan revealed around that time as well. Remember to get your questions in for our series finale using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or emailing BringBackV10s at the-race.com. Or you can leave us a five-star podcast review if you think we deserve it and submit a question there too. And remember to check out the Race Members Club where among the many special benefits available, 
you will also get early access to ad-free versions of the new series of Bring Back V10s. To find out more, go to the-race.com forward slash members club. Next time, we're jumping forward into the 21st century and taking a look at the 2004 Monaco Grand Prix, where Ferrari tasted defeat for the first time that season and Jano Trulli famously took the only win of his F1 career.